Welcome to The Savvy Founder, the one place for entrepreneurs and business owners, away from the everyday bustle, where we help you find your path to a profitable and bright future. Now here's your host, The Savvy Founder and armchair sociologist himself, Philip Topham. Hello and welcome to The Savvy Founder. I'm Philip Topham, your host. And I am very happy to have in the virtual studio, Joshua Wool. How are you doing? Hello, Philip. I'm doing very well. Thank you. How about you? I'm doing wonderful. And our audience will probably detect a small accent. So where are you from and where are you calling from? <laughs> so I am Dutch. Uh, I am currently calling from New York, uh, but I live in London. Well, I think we've got uh, between you living in London and New York and me in California, we've got about a third of the planet covered. Excellent. So I am very happy to, to, to sort of uh, drill down into your story. And why don't you introduce your business to, you know, what you, what are you doing? So uh, I'm currently CEO at Mindstone, where we have a mission to surface and accelerate the world's informal learning. So the, there are lots of problems around, around learning today, where the increase of automation in the workplace is leading to greater demands and requirements of upskilling and reskilling. Um, and they're hitting a category of user that is not catered to by the current education system, the adult learners, basically. Uh, and uh, we're trying to, to build solutions for them, uh, specifically based around the internet. So if you think about the internet as the most powerful learning resource the world has ever seen, like we're all constantly learning from it, from best practice articles, podcasts, YouTube videos, even tweet threads. Absolutely. Yeah, exactly. And that's what we're doing. So I like that you're focused on helping people learn. How did you come up with that idea though? It's, it's, it seems kind of odd, like the universities and schools and, and we just automatically do it today when we're adults with YouTube and that sort of stuff. So why, it doesn't seem like a problem to me. What, what, you know, is it a problem? So, so there are multiple problems associated, but, but two, two big ones. One is that the current institutions have a lock on the ecosystem with degrees and certifications providing the only usable proxy for companies to make talent acquisition or development decisions today. If I am uh, a, a recruiter and I'm trying to find the best person for a particular position, and I've got a thousand applications to that position. I have no way of understanding if you actually acquired the skills you say you did other than through some kind of certification or degree that you will have had in the past. So even if you had taught yourself all the required skills for the job and you had been performing that job for a while, it would be hard for me as a, as a hiring manager, as a talent acquisition manager, to even provide you with an interview, which is why you have this effect where people can 
have all the right skills, but not the right stamps from the right universities and still be left behind, still not have access to the opportunities that people with half their skills, but with the right stamps from the right universities suddenly do have access to. So that's kind of one part of the problem set is unlocking opportunity for people that have the skills and want and can move forward. And the other part is that although we all learn from the internet, very few people are aware of how to learn well. Um, We know a lot more about how the brain works today than we did 20 years ago, but very few people in the world are aware of how to leverage some of what we know in order to dramatically accelerate the way that they learn, learn faster, remember more of what they're learning. And so kind of, those are the two biggest problems that we end up solving. Nice. And how does that fit into, so we talked a lot about the universities, the lock on the the certifications through a diploma or competency things. Uh, How does that fit with the MOOCs? Because they're, they're issuing, they're kind of this new online university, and so where do you fit with the MOOCs, the, the massive online communities for, for learning? Yeah, so MOOCs, I would say, are the first step in using technology to, to, to help with these problems, to scale the solutions that are out there. But like many other industries before them, the internet kind of forces these industries to go through different steps. You first have, um, step one is, be available on the internet so people understand who you are, but it becomes just a funnel for your physical activity. Step two of the industry tends to be, okay, I'm going to take my existing offering exactly as it is and just put it online and see if people are willing to pay for it, which is where we are today because we're basically looking at education television. It's not much more than filming a lecture, putting that online, and then letting people consume the existing product that hasn't materially changed. Mm -hmm. Uh, However, we are today in a world that's entirely different to what it used to be. Whereas before, we used to have a problem of scarcity of information. The access to information was, was somewhat limited. And you, it, it made sense to have one person stand in front of 300 others in order to disseminate the, the knowledge that was otherwise inaccessible and, and hard to digest. Today, the problem is the opposite way around. We are overloaded with information. And so the third step, which is really what the internet is all about, is that now that we're in a world of information abundance, how do you rethink the entire concept of learning and skill acquisition in a world that is fundamentally different? And that's what we're about, is how do you take every article you find online, every podcast that exists, every video you watch, and how do you transform that into the world's most powerful learning resource and then start to quantify that so people can take that with them for future employers and unlock future opportunities, if that makes sense. Nice. So, so I, do, I do like that, that shift that you've, you've helped us understand is that, you know, universities used to provide information and you had to go to a university to get it. Now the internet's providing lots of it, but how do you take that with you and show people that you have it? Um, how did you really come up with that, you know, unique view on, on the, the need 
right? The problem. Was it something you faced with or, or what was, what's the pinnacle moment you said, aha, this is, this is it. So I'd say there were, there were two stages to it. There was the kind of the, the inherent need and the feeling, the intuition that I developed through my personal problems. So I myself am a self-taught developer. Um, I taught myself to code, built a few businesses around it. Retrospectively, whatever, 10 years almost after I've built my first business around building websites and apps for, for other people, did I go through a computer science degree? Um, I went through the degree only to get the stamp, not to get the learning, which is uh, one of the, the points I was talking about before. And so the, at a personal level, the ability or the, the experience of being able to learn anything you want online was and is somewhat transformative. It's really, it's empowering that you know anything you want to learn, you can, so long as you are persistent enough, you find the right information, it's all there online. If you want to learn how to build a rocket today, you can find all the information and figure it out purely based on all that is available. Um, so that was that was kind of one thing, which is personally I've done this uh, at a from a from a developer perspective, and I've gone through it um, building previous businesses and upscaling myself. Then at a more macro level, um, I started investing in the education space, and it when I started realizing the power of um, the results of the automation, the increase of automation in the workforce and what the consequences of that would be. So the fact that you would have more pressure on reskilling and upskilling in the workforce was, was a, one of the aha moments was definitely when McKinsey came out with a report, uh, it was in 2019, I think, and they predicted that by 2030, uh, 30% of 60% of occupations would be entirely automated. Now that's 30% of the occupations of six people in 10 that are going to have to figure out how to reallocate that time because they're going to get under pressure to either upskill or reskill in order to make sure they're not. Yeah, upskill. absolutely. Yeah, I've seen all those, those uh, mid, they used to say that the knowledge worker was protected. And then with the advancement of AI, the the routine the, that mid tier all the accountants and things uh, those jobs are going to be at jeopardy with the AI technologies that are out there. You can put an invoice in front of a machine and it can tell you whether it's right or wrong, and it doesn't have to really put it into a da you know database. It just sort of reads it like human language right now. Exactly. Yeah, and and so you put those two things together. The fact that it's possible to learn anything online and the fact that learning is going to become a bigger and bigger problem because these people will need to reskill and upskill. Um, and kind of those two things together make me think, oh, wait, there is something very interesting to build here. Very nice. So, so how does, how does Mindstone solve that problem then? How do, how do you show the, the, you know, you walk us through it. I'm, I'm, needing to, to show somebody I've learned something, I know something. So how does Mindstone do that? Yeah. There's, there's a bit of a difference between kind of where, we're, where we are today and obviously where we really want to be in a, in, a, in a little while from now. So at a high level, we're building out the Fitbit and Stack Overflow for learning. 
And the last two years, what we built is basically an engine that allows you to, to extract all of the key insights from the information you are already engaging with online. So all the podcasts you listen to, the videos you watch, the articles you read, we enable you to extract the key insights and then allow you to store that them in one place so that you can remember them and apply them to your day-to-day. The next stage for us is indeed where we start to look at quantifying the way that you're engaging with that content so that we leave you with a skill record that you can take away with you, um, similarly to how Stack Overflow does it in the engineering space. Nice, so, so that's, that's something for the audience to really understand. You have this, this um, big vision, the why you're doing something, and the Mindstone product you have today is your beachhead launching point, the foundational data gathering so that you can then get to the big pyramid. So how did you, was that an easy thing that you said, here's the vision and here's how we're going to start the beachhead, you know, that, that whole concept of the product market fit. Like, how do I go from these phenomenal ideas I have and excitement as an entrepreneur, I'm going to conquer the world to, to putting it into a piece of paper that says, this is what I'm going to do. It's a, it's a really good question. Um, I'd say there are, there are two different parts to, to that as well. One is, there was an enormous amount of, of research that kind of went into this. I've been investing in the education space for four years, um, more than three years leading up to building Mindstone or starting to build Mindstone in the first place. And so there was a lot of sitting down with other people and figuring out what the, the overall trends were. Some of these things are, are your fundamental hypotheses, like this idea that the, the increase of AI or in, increased in improvement of AI leads to um, more and more skills getting automated, that there is a belief in that trend not reversing. So we've seen it grow and grow and grow and grow. And there's a belief about, well, that is going to continue. And if anything, it's going to accelerate. So that's kind of a fundamental hypothesis for a company. If, if somehow society turns around and says, well, AI has stopped developing and there's no more automation, that would fundamentally question, uh, put to question everything that we're looking at. But if you believe that, then there are a set of consequences that are kind of inevitable. Um, and so long as you then build for the future of those consequences, you're now on a track to at least have um, some of the tailwinds, I guess, that come, that come from, from those fundamental insights. So in terms of what are you building or what is the market you're building for, being able to find one or two hypotheses that you can really stand on, that you know are going to be true in the future, that really gives you a big leg up. Now, you then mentioned the product market fit. How do you, sorry. Yeah, let's, let's, let's hold the product market fit for a second. Let me recap what I heard so that we, we make sure that everybody in the audience also, um, correct me if I'm wrong, if I'm going to say this, there's the world and technology is changing dramatically and very, very fast. And so I think in the past, the inventions were very sort of linear. Um, if I have a, 
a car, the Model T Ford, and it kept getting better and better over years. But the car really didn't fundamentally change since it was invented until today. And, and you might, might argue even the electric car is just another version of that car, just a different engine, a propulsion, and that sort of stuff. But the fundamental thing that we can see happening is the self-driving car, right? That will be this huge new adoption and a new way of doing things. And you're and when that happens, the world, the 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 problems and the things change dramatically. And so you, if you're a business, you're going to say, "This is the bathtub I'm going to go play in. This is the area I'm going to be." As the as the water rises, all ships rise as well. And I think that's the what you're saying is fundamentally information was scarce fundamentally information is so abundant and now you better deal with abundant information and prove to people you know what you know exactly and and to kind of take your analogy of cars there it would be building for a future where autonomous cars are the norm and what that means for society now you can be wrong somehow if if for some weird reason AI development stops and autonomous cars are never a reality or are still 20 years away, you might be wrong. But the um, that you have to have one or two key hypotheses that you stand for, that you believe are going to happen because that is what allows you to build for that future. Right? And it's fine if you are wrong on timing on that or, or, or not, but you have to believe in, in one or two of them. Got it. Wonderful. Good. I understood perfectly. And we gave the audience an analogy as well. Perfect. So on the product market fit, let's, let's drill into that. How did that come about? So you're, you've got this grand vision and then you're starting gathering information. So man, there's a hundred ways you could gather information in one place. So how did you decide what you decided? Yeah. So um, first off, I would not necessarily say that we have um, product market fit today. We are kind of right at that stage where we are, we're getting close to it. And for certain markets, we would, you could argue that we have fit and for other markets, we we don't yet, um, depending on how you qualify your market. And this is where I think some of the popular narrative going around is actually counterproductive. So the, one of the more famous quotes around product market fit. I think it was Mark Andreessen who said, like, if you, if you're asking yourself, if you have product market fit, you probably don't have it. And that's the the idea being that if you have product market fit, your products fly off the shelves. People are beating down your door to try and get your product and it is taking off like crazy. And for some products, that's correct. For some products, when you, when you have such dramatic success that everybody in the world wants it, it's unquestionable. But I can tell you, having built uh, previous companies before that were very successful, um, like really going into the hundreds of millions um, in, in, in terms of revenue, that that is not how it felt. That is not how it feels for most. If you are building Instagram and you, even Instagram in the early days might not have felt like that or WhatsApp in the early days, at least on the inside, it doesn't feel like it is obvious what you're doing. And so the, the reason I think it's counterproductive is that it's making a lot of founders question, wait, am I doing the right thing here? Because it is not obvious to me that we have product market fit. And if it's not obvious to me, then I must not have it. And so if I don't have it, what do I need to do to get it? 
Yeah, I, I, I agree with you. I, I often use the analogy of the original ATM to describe to people the adoption of new things. And I'm sure the first time the ATM was installed and nobody used it and everybody still went into the bank and the way banks used to work is you'd get your paycheck on the, the, the middle of the month or the end of the month and the bank on Friday would be incredibly busy at lunch to everybody cashing their check. And you'd have this huge queue line out the door. And then the ATM was installed. And the early adopter was the person who, man, this is so painful standing in line. Let me go try this newfangled thing. I've got to check. The worst it can do is I get it reissued, right? The, the pain. And so they would try it. And then the next generation of people would come around and they'd see, they'd watch this brave soul using the ATM and they'd go, hmm. What's going on? They stand back, they'd look, they'd see, they'd go, maybe, and then they'd get up the gumption to do it because they looked at the line as well. And eventually we say, everybody's using ATMs. In fact, today we're using, you know, so many phones to move money here, there, crypto, you know, the product market fit to me was obvious that the ATM was a, a, a fit with how people wanted to do work. They didn't want to stand in line. They wanted to get it. But at the time, I'm sure everybody doubted whether it did or didn't because people, people had the pain, the pain of getting their check and their money didn't go away. Yeah. What, was, what had to be shifted was the market had to actually be educated and shifted that they could do something new. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And, and that's actually a really, that, that education piece is really interesting, right? For, for Mindstone, we have, we have a decent piece around that. Sometimes I talk about um, and that we need to do for learning what Nike did for fitness. Uh, where okay. 15 years ago, only athletes would take their fitness routine really seriously. They would track it. They would optimize for it. They would try and figure out what good looks like versus others. Today, fitness is part of most high-performing knowledge intensive professionals like most people in the workforce today will think about their fitness at a f much deeper level and it's part of their day-to-day -day routine but that was done over the last 15 years somehow it went from something people didn't think actively about to something that is now aspirational people take it seriously yep. absolutely and i think a similar thing is going to happen for learning both because it's going to be required because suddenly everyone needs to do it because of automation and also because of the power that is still latent in there. Like the, the, how we have not yet unlocked all that power of the internet and how that can transform someone's life. Yeah. I, I even saw an article probably the last few days uh, about the, such the shortage of programmers and engineers that they were going to consider non-computer scientists and, and non-vocational trained school, you know, the, the boot camps and just do, can they do the job? Yep. Right. So see that going. So as you, as you are in this process, what, how, how did you go about figuring out what features to put in the product, right? That's another part of that. You know, you um, were you blessed at having an unlimited bank account to put in every single feature or, or did you have to be, what do we really work on? How did, how did you agonize over what you built? Uh, an enormous amount of conversations with our users. 
in the first year, I think we did more than 300 user interviews. Uh, Zoom actually made this somewhat easier, by the way, because they, before, before COVID, people would be a little bit less willing to jump on a Zoom call. They'd be willing to get a coffee, but less willing to jump on a Zoom call. And so getting a coffee takes much more time, which means it's harder to go and do because you need to get there. Like When you have half an hour coffee, it takes you an hour, an hour and a half in total time commitment. Um, but on a Zoom call, we could do 20 minute, 15 to 20 minute Zoom calls. We do one every single day with one of our users. Just ask them a bunch of questions. Um, yeah. What is what's not working? What do what do you wish it could do? Um, what uh, in in your job of trying to make sense of all of this information, what other apps are using? What are they they doing that um, you are still using them and you're not using you're not doing this in our app? What's standing in your way? All of all of that uh, those questions, and then it becomes just a constant process of taking the questions, putting them in your in your data bank, and then figuring out well, how many people are asking for X, and then starting to weigh, put your own um, your own rational thinking in that and you have to be a little bit careful with putting too much weight to your your own thoughts versus um versus very clear problem statements uh coming from your users and then prioritize yeah so for those that you follow the show a lot you again you, the, the customer interviews are not 10 people 20 people they're hundreds of people right and it's now part of your dna yeah, it's absolutely like you, you live and breathe what those users are talking about, how they talk about it. Um, one of the biggest things, to, for example, we, um, this is a thing that Matt Lerner talks a lot about. He, he runs a program called Startup Core Strengths, and he, he started popularizing this um, concept around language market fit, which is really interesting. Yes, yeah. Because uh, it's about, you can have a grasp of the problem but you can still be using your words instead of your user's words. Uh, we actually ran into this, for example, where we were talking about how Mindstone would help you memorize things. Nobody talks about memorizing. They talk about remembering. They want to remember more. Right. Um, and, uh, so, and we were talking about accelerating learning. But what people talk about is they wanting to learn faster. And so interesting enough, we actually did this. We, we had these what, a few hundred user interviews. We had them all on Zoom. So what we ended up doing is running them through um, speech to text and right. then do language analysis on the text that came out in order to identify the actual words that our users were using. This is where we came up with re learn faster, remember more. And overnight, that 10x star conversion rate on the website. Yeah, brilliant. I, I agree with that. That's that's what I call the um, we're, we're programmed to go to the Internet to type in our question and we're going to type it in in the language we know. Yeah, right. And we, that's how we're going to first discover it. And that, you can't change that basic mode. Yeah. Not, not day one. Once you become Nike and you've spent 20 years doing it, yes. <laughs> That's different indeed. Now, one of the things, though, that I, I was thinking about is on the, on the language when it comes to marketing, the other side of things. How do you then market the business? Because if you use the same language of everybody else, 
you don't seem to have anything that's the unique value proposition, the uniqueness. It's like the same words that everybody else is using. So how do you go about solving that problem? So yeah, that, that's actually the, the bit I was talking about before, which is the don't use the words that everybody else is using. Don't use the words you are using. And often, actually, the professionals in the industry will talk about things in an entirely different way, especially if you are so clearly in the middle of building your own product. Like in my case, I've been investing in the space, thinking about learning for years and years before. But the words I was using, even though we were talking about the same concepts, they were not the words that would resonate with our users. And, and that was a very important step. Now, the other part, which is what we're working on now, um, as, as we're, the, the product's now built out and we're kind of getting, getting clearer about our initial market definition, is to start to understand once you have users, you can start to figure out which, one of the, which ones of these users are the, the ones that are really engaging with our solution. And can you find commonality in those users? Do they have specific traits? And within those traits, are there concepts that appeal specifically to these power users? Um, and that, again, you go through the same exercise again, actually. It's just that you now do it on a, a target user set, which is more defined and which will get you to go through another, another iteration of the language you should be using, which would resonate with those users. Right. That, that's, uh, I think that's very much on track with the, that's that product market fit conversation we're talking when you, you know, when you get down to such a narrow segment that it just totally resonates with that segment, then that would, you would argue that's product market fit, but I would argue that it, it never stops, right? Once you've identified that, that target and you've got them dialed in, it's, it's simply just like marketing, um, when you're marketing a consumer product, they say, well, what should you do? Oh, social media. Well, pick one, you know, pick a Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, TikTok, pick one, learn how to message on one, then expand to the other, right? So I would argue marketing is a, a constant product marketing fit process. And even your product is as soon as you develop it, you've got your customer and then you need to grow your business. And then you get to a certain point where you've tapped out that market and you've got to go expand to a new market and new customers. And you do the same thing. Yeah, absolutely. You can't, at a small level, you can't take the marketing playbook of all the, the big ones without looking at what the big ones did when they were small. Yeah, exactly. They, they're a, a never ending story of constant product market fits. Right. So continuous, constantly changing. Um, I had a thought, how big is your team? You, you mentioned your team, you're working on, how, how big is your team now? Uh, currently it's very small, uh, 11 people. 11 people, wonderful. And what's your next big challenge for you moving forward with where you're at in your, in your growth and your company? So the last two years have been about building out the tech, making sure that it worked. And so anyone could really try it. We had about seven, a little over 75,000 users kind of try it out, make sure it, it's just a little, just, just a little over 75,000. Try it out. Well, congratulations. <laughs> <laughs> it's 
start. Good start. Um, but we are we are about to to basically restrict signups to the target users that we were talking about just before. Um, the idea being that we want to make sure that we build the best possible product for the types of users that we have now identified as being the heaviest users of our product. And so for about the next whatever's foreseeable future, um, only people that respond to those criteria will be able to to sign up and everybody else can definitely join a waitlist and we'll have to figure out when we're ready to kind of expand and, and go through that whole exercise that you you mentioned around expanding the market, rethinking product language fit um, and so on. Uh, but that's the biggest challenge that we have right now is getting that back down and then making sure we determine the signal from the noise of all the feedback from every other user that we're getting at the moment as well. Got it. Um, so that's what you're doing. Um, for some, that would be counterintuitive. You've got, a gut, uh, you know, you've got all these users. So just let's go out and rush and get more users. And here you are limiting the users. Uh, and, and I, you know, help, help the audience understand why that's the, uh, uh, the approach. I know it's talked about in the startup world, but how does that feel to do that? So in, in today's world, it's very easy to kid yourself that you've got product market fit as well. It's very easy to actually, it is fairly easy to acquire users. Um, the, the, the challenges and where you really want to get to is that a product grows organically and that your users, once they're acquired, stick, they get real value out of it. And, um, and the, and you're able to make it a product that they use on a frequent basis. So in our case, um, you're able to acquire users, whether that's based off of our profile or based off of uh, marketing spend. And you can theoretically just ramp up marketing spend um, and we could double, triple, probably 10X our users without too much trouble, but it's going to run out because marketing, like if you're just acquiring users with money, yeah. you're at some point going to run out of the money. Um, and so what we're doing here is we want to not just get a decent product out, but we want to have a product that people are genuinely excited about that has the best possible user experience with very high retention rates. And then once we hit that piece, that's when we start accelerating. Yeah, It's like... Um, was it the analogy that people say when you have a leaky bucket and people and, and the product is not perfect yet, you can you can fill it up very quickly, but you're still going to be left with an empty bucket. If you're able to get that bucket to be almost yeah. perfect where it doesn't leak. Yeah, there's the there's the classic book, nail it, then scale it. Exactly. Right. If you if you if you have your leaky bucket, doesn't matter how many users you put in your bucket, you'll end up with an empty bucket. Exactly. Or an empty wallet. Very true. <laughs> uh, and, and let's let's take this in a in a, a another direction in building a startup and such. And that is a, a common a common question that that founders have is um, the the values building a company's values and getting the right people on the team and building the right culture and knowing that you have the right people on board. Was that easy to figure that out for you? Or is it a, was it a struggle? Did you know day one who was a fit for the company and who wasn't a fit? Um, it's a moving goalpost. 
first of all, I'd say, because the people that are that are the right fit on day one might not be the right fit in year two, year three, year four, depending on how the company has evolved. So it, it's a moving target um, constantly. I did have the benefit of, I've been in this space for what, 20 years now almost. So there were quite a few people that I knew um, that I'd worked with in the past and a few people that I definitely wanted to have joined the team. The, it's not easy at all. Um, it is also, however, your biggest initial asset. If, and I would even argue over time remains your biggest asset. If you are able to build a team that is great, that team will figure out everything else, whether it is that you're solving the wrong problem or that you're not scaling fast enough or any other problem. If you've got the right team, they will figure it out. And so it's the, the number one thing you should be spending time on as well as you're building a company. The biggest thing that I think even I still keep underestimating is the power of grit um, and this idea that you can have really great people that are amazing at what they do. Um, and then on the other end, you can have someone who's good, maybe even great at what they do, but not the best at what they do, but they simply outwork um, the other people and they will be rigorous in what they're doing. They put it and, and they end up with results that are better, not because they are themselves better, but because they are willing to um, sacrifice for it for themselves. And they are, they are more motivated to get to the result they really want to get to. Right. And that, especially in the early stages, especially in the first few years, is something that I would put very high on the list, probably top of the list. I very, very nice. It's it. Uh, it's sort of. Uh, I'm hearing the words, the little words that I use. Sometimes I use the. Uh, people have heard me talk about the fast framework, and I. I think the number one thing a founder has to have before they start on a journey, it's not about the lean business canvas. It's not about the customer interviews. It's not about anything else. It's like, are you really a founder? Like, do you have, do you have the focus to get to where you want to go, which is your grit? You know, do you have the follow through to get up every single day, which is part of the grit? Yeah. And do you have the fortitude? Do you have the energy to get up every day and to follow through and to focus? <laughs> right. uh, and to get up every time that you're knocked down. Yeah. Every time something is in your way uh, or every excuse that comes your way as to why you're not doing it today and you, you might as well push it to tomorrow. Like, yeah, yeah. very, very true. Uh, in in uh, a couple of shows ago, Trevor used a different analogy where if there was a hundred companies all starting on the same idea, the same space um, and they were running a race it's like running a hurdle race so for every hurdle your company jumps over you eliminate some of the weaker competition yeah yeah so Absolutely. very nice um and i think if, by the way that is getting underestimated in today like right now in kind of the current mindset of people there's this whole um thing which i think overall is a really good movement around how do you how do you think about work-life balance and all of those things where I, I like to talk much more about work-life integration, uh, but also the, the value of effort is getting lost in the discussion um, as if it doesn't exist, which I think is, again, that this is one of the counterproductive uh, parts where obviously everyone needs to make sure that they are 
able to to be happy with what they're doing but that doesn't mean that the extra effort doesn't yield more results it's almost as if we lost that concept yeah i i would agree with you and i think it's a little bit of this this why i do the podcast and and there's so many stories of the billion dollar baby that you know they started last week and they got and they're just suddenly this right and so it seems you know if i'm inclined to be in the startup world that if i start on something and it doesn't become a billion dollar baby in 18 months that i i i should abandon ship and go someplace else right and and the reality is that's just sometimes that's uh, uh you know the iconic uh, rags to riches overnight, which is is not the norm. Most people have to put in a lifetime of work. You know, take the uh, the the world's best tennis player. Uh, they didn't go from nothing to overnight superstar. They're working every single day. You know, they're the sports people are probably the the best examples of entrepreneurs because they have the grit to tough it out and get through everything. Exactly. And obviously, people start out with different levels. You, you might have an easier start to tennis uh, than somebody else. But if somebody else puts in twice the effort, you are likely to still be losing at the end of the game. Yep, exactly. So when uh, you know, we're, we've gone through this time has flown by. And as we come to the end here, when you think of your past businesses, this business and that sort of stuff, is there anything that you would tell your younger self? I wish I had known that sooner and I could have run faster or done better or been happier. The, the power of checklist for me has been a big revelation a few years ago. So, or maybe another way of putting it, the power of systems and checklists are just a manifestation of it. Mm -hmm. uh, trying to keep everything in your head all the time and somehow magically think that you are going to have the optimum lifestyle and get you get you to the optimum result runs out of steam very quickly. Um, you are going to forget things. Uh, and so regular routines tied to clear checklists have been a superpower um, for me, where, for example, I've got Every day, I'll have an end of day checklist, things that I have committed to doing at the end of every day. And I have them in checklists so that I make sure I don't miss one of them at the end of the day. I have the same for every week. Every week on a weekend, I will have a weekly checklist. Make sure that I put my targets for the end of the week. Make sure that they are measurable. Make sure that I've communicated them, like all of those things. And if I didn't have those checklists, it's not that it is impossible to remember them, but I uh, at least before I had them, I would always constantly find myself missing one, two, three of them. Um, and that then ended up just hurting my own performance. Very, very nice. And I agree with that. I think if you, if you are constantly having to remember lists in your head, you're using up the storage capacity of your brain. Um, but there's a reason why the pilot uses a checklist before he leaves. There's a reason they go through a checklist before they amputate your leg. You know, you would think these are the these are the smartest people that you know they're they're neurosurgeons and doctors and such, and they should know everything. And no, nope, they use a list. So wonderful learning. I'm glad you shared that. And is there anything you'd like to shout out to the audience? How how can they you know 
check out your product, find if they fit the, 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 the special category or get, have to get on the wait list? Absolutely. Yeah, they can go to, to mindstone.com. Um, and uh, if, they, if they're really desperate to try and, and, and get out, they can always find me uh, on Twitter at Joshua Vola. Uh, and if they, uh, if they do want a special invite, I can, I can make an exception. Definitely get them, get them to use the product if they really want to. And I will have all that in the show notes. Thank you for sharing your delightful you know, story and journey and helpfully short, shorten the journey of another startup listening to the show. I am very happy and hopefully it is helpful. I'm, I am glad, I absolutely know it will be out there. So thanks for listening. I'm Philip Topham, the host for The Savvy Founder. If you found anything useful today, please share it with another founder so they too can shorten their journey. Leave a five-star review. Or if you want to ask a question, book me at the Ask the Savvy Founder. You can book.me. I'll have that in the show notes. Thanks again for listening. Wishing you a bright and profitable future in both your personal and business lives. Take care. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed the show. Be sure to subscribe and check out our website for tips, thesavvyfounder.com. You can also follow Philip on Clubhouse at The Savvy Founder. Wishing you a profitable and bright future. Safe journeys. See you next week.